Okay, we are continuing along the chronological life of Jesus, and um, we are now in the the, uh, the final phase of his life, and uh, we had just finished a portion, which was the last Tuesday of his life. So remember, we had finished up on a Tuesday, and then what happens is, there's nothing recorded on that Wednesday, that last Wednesday of his life, and then it picks back up again on the Thursday. Of his life, and so that Wednesday he took off, and he he just stayed in Bethany, and uh, uh, with his disciples, and it was totally a time all for his his disciples. So it's interesting that even the Lord knew how to take time off to prepare for something that was big, and uh, so so uh, the the last event that we had, he was in the house of someone named Simon the leper, and uh, Mary. The, the sister of Martha had anointed him with oil for his burial. And interestingly enough, uh, it says that, that uh, some of the disciples were indignant. And it says particularly of, of uh, uh, Judas. Judas wanted to, would have liked to have had that, that money spent. Uh, that money, uh, uh, he says, given to the poor people. But it says he was a thief. And Jesus reproved him. Jesus reproved him for that. And that last portion that we read was, was, uh, was actually in John chapter 12, uh, verse, verse uh, 6. Well, I'll start reading it at verse 4. John chapter 12, verse 4. I'm sorry, John chapter 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So you see, Jesus reproved Judas. Judas said this out of selfish means. What's interesting is that Jesus put Judas in charge of the money box knowing that he was pilfering it. And you see, what he did is he started to steal from the money box. And when we start a little bit into sin, it leads to greater and greater sin. You think that, oh, it's just a little thing. Well, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm in charge of this money box, so I'm just taking a little bit due for me. That's, it's, it's being a thief. You cheat on your income tax, it's going to cost you much more than the amount that you're saving on your income tax. When you're a cheat, it costs you a lot, especially if you're a believer in Christ. Especially if you're a believer. And Jesus reproves Judas. And so the next thing that happens in the chronological life, the next thing that occurs, so, so that, that was on a Tuesday. The Wednesday we see nothing. It picks back up again on a Thursday, and this is now in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, we're going to start reading in verse 3. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. It says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the, num uh, the number of the twelve. So Satan enters into Judas, Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means uh, uh, from Kariot. You can go to Israel today and go to the town of Kariot. Judas, the, the word Iscariot means from Kariot. And so, so he was named Judas, the one from Kariot. And uh, 
And it says that Satan entered into him at that time. So this is not just a normal demon possession at this time. This is Satan himself entering into Judas. It says, and he went away, in verse 4, he went away and he discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. So remember, we had read this last time. There were two provisions that the leadership of Israel had to maintain in order to capture Jesus. They said, we have to get him apart from the masses of the people because the masses of the people thought he was a prophet. They, so they, they said, we have to trap him away from the masses of the people. They already knew what he looked like. They just didn't know where he hung out in the evening. So they needed some help with this. The other thing they said is that they didn't want to have a trial and, and kill him during the Sabbath during the Passover. They did not want it to occur on the Passover. But Jesus is actually going to force his hand because remember, it was prophesied that Jesus was going to die on the Passover as the Passover lamb and that he was going to die on a tree. He was going to be crucified. If if Jesus only had to die, he could have died as a two-year-old in Bethlehem with all the other boys that died. But no, he had to die in the, at the prescribed time, in the prescribed way. And Jesus is actually going to force their hand to do something. They wanted to kill him after the Passover feast. They said not during the feast, but he's going to force their hand because he has to die at the prescribed time. Which says that Jesus was very much in control of all of this. And so it says that Judas comes to them and he says to them, I can provide a way for you to get to him apart from the crowds. I know where he hangs out. That's what it says in verse, in verse 6 of Luke 22. So he consented and he began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Judas was reproved by Jesus in the home of Simon the leper, who, remember, Simon had already been healed, but the terminology of the names were often carried on. And, and, uh, After this reproof, he became so embittered to Jesus, Satan entered him and he sought to to turn him over. It says in the scriptures, it says in Psalm chapter 6, I'm sorry, in Proverbs 6.23, it says, corrections for reproof are a way of life. If you get all bent out of shape because somebody corrects you, learn to change your attitude. As believers, correction for reproof is a way of life. I remember the first time I moved into a discipleship house, I was, uh, I was 19 years old, and I moved in this house with these, these Christian guys, and uh, uh, it seemed like every little thing that I did, I did wrong. And they were constantly correcting me, constantly correcting me, and, and so I talked to my roommate about this one day, and I said, you know, everything I do here, it seems like somebody's correcting me. And in a typical young person fashion, there was no mercy. He said, correction for reproof is a way of life. Boom. That's it. And he showed me in the scripture. This is a verse in the Bible. Corrections for reproof are a way of life. Get over it. So if you get all bent out of shape that somebody should correct you, just remember the scriptures say correction for reproof is the way of life. All right. Take the correction and move on. 
Judas got all bent out of shape because of this correction from Jesus and he goes out to betray Him. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start reading from verse 14. Matthew gives us a little more information about what went on in this discussion between Judas and the Jewish authorities on picking up Jesus and turning him over to Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, reading from verse 14. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and he said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So Judas goes to them, he says, What are you willing to give me to betray Jesus to you? He didn't name a price. He just said, what are you willing to give me? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. The Jewish authorities chose the price on Jesus' head. 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver was not just some random number. Where does that come up? Where did they come up with that? If you read in Exodus, Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, talks about what 30 pieces of silver pays for. Exodus chapter 21, back in the law, verse 32. And the priests well knew this. It says this, If an ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So in other words, you have a slave working in the field. Somebody else's ox comes and gores that slave. The person who owns the ox has to pay the slave owner 30 pieces of silver and then they kill the ox. 30 pieces of silver was the value placed upon a dead slave. That is the value. And what it became is it became a value of contempt. So in other words, over the years from the time this law was given, if any two people were negotiating on a contract and they came to a price and that price was around 30 pieces of silver, they wouldn't choose 30 pieces of silver because it was a value of contempt. They would choose the value 29 pieces of silver or 31 pieces of silver. They would avoid the number 30 pieces of silver. You say, that's odd. Well, go, go around the United States and tell me when you go into a hotel, how many of those hotels have the floor number 13 on the keypad for, for the elevator? Very few. They skip the 13th floor. Why? Because it's an unlucky number in American standards. So they skip the 13th floor. So 13th floor really is called 14th floor. It's really floor 13, but they call it floor 14. So you go from 12 to 14 because it's an unlucky number in American culture. I've talked to some of my Chinese friends and I say, is, is 13 an unlucky number in China? They say, no, it's a lucky number. So it, it depends on what culture you're in. In that culture, 30 pieces of silver was a value of contempt. We have contemptuous numbers, values in our culture as well. So, for example, if I go to a hotel and say I go there with my family and I don't ask the, the bellman to take my bags out of the, out of the, the taxi 
and say he takes all the bags. Say he takes, you know, eight bags out of the taxi. He puts, puts them on a, on a cart and he brings them up to the room for us and he puts them in the room. Now, I never asked him to do this. Now, if I don't give him some money for this, then I'm a cheapskate, right? I really ought to pay him. Even though I never asked him to do this for me, I could have done it. Could have, that's what I have kids for. You know? Pull your bags. But no, he did this. And so there's this expectation that I'm going to pay him. But if I don't, I'm a cheapskate. But if I did something different, if on his way out I said, hey, let me give you something, and I took out a penny and I gave it to him. Now that is a value of contempt. If I pay him nothing, it may be that I forgot, it may be that I'm a cheapskate, but if I give him one penny, I mean, he'd want to punch me in the nose. You know, that's a value of contempt. And he'd go and he'd tell the, 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 the hotel administration, the hotel administration might even come and talk to me and say, you know, you have to treat our employees well. Because that's a value of contempt. And that's exactly what was happening here. They paid 30 pieces of silver, which was well known in that culture to be the value of contempt. But little did they realize that for them to take that money out of the treasury... That treasury money in the temple was to be used for the purchase of sacrifices. They were actually taking the proper money for the purchase of a sacrifice. We see another example of this in, in that culture. If you look in, in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 11, Zechariah chapter 11, there's an instance where Zechariah... He, w- he went out and he shepherded sh- some sheep for the leaders of Israel. And then when he came back to them, he said, if you think it's of no value, fine, don't pay me. But if you think it's of value, you pay me what you think the value is of my service to you. And it says in verse 12, Zechariah chapter, chapter 11, verse, t- verse 12, he says, I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. This was, again, a value of contempt. 30 shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So he took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And so you see that this was prophetic in what was going to take place with the Messiah in years to come. This was prophetic. But they again, in that instance with Zechariah, they were using that number, 30 shekels of silver, as a value of contempt. The value of a dead slave, which was more than that, it had become culturally the value of contempt. And God calls it that magnificent price. He says, just throw it right back into the temple. That magnificent price because that's the price at which his son will be valued by them. That's what he's talking about. So that was a really striking price that, that, that was set upon, upon Jesus. So now what we're going to do is we're going to think about this. This value, this value that was set upon Jesus. You know what Jesus could have done? He could have taken the attitude, look, they're valuing me 
at 30 pieces of silver and gotten all bent out of shape about this. But we have things that are written in the Old Testament that tell us about the life of Christ. There are things written prophetically about Jesus which aren't even revealed in the New Testament. And we get this understanding of Him. So I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. And in Isaiah 49, there is a prophetic portion about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And we'll start reading Isaiah 49, verse 1, so you get the context of this. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother He named me. And He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He, he, he has concealed me. And He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in His quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, is it, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the, pres the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is prophetically about the coming of Jesus. He says that not only are you going to restore Jacob, the sons of Israel, that's too small a thing for you. You are going to be the light to the nations. That means to the Gentile nations. So you see that it was prophesied that Jesus would reach way beyond just the nation of Israel. And He would reach right in and He would grab the Gentile nations as well. And He would draw them in. But look at what it says in verse 4. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Imagine from Jesus' perspective. Here, at the end, all of His disciples desert Him. They all run away. At the foot of the cross are just a few women who've come to see Him at the foot of the cross. And, and John comes and he returns. But all of the others are gone. They're all gone. He's, if you look at it totally from human eyes, this is what you would see. This deserted Savior. This one who healed the masses. This one who touched the lives of so many. Boom. Everybody was gone. Really easy to mock Him. What has He got? but a few poor women at his, at, 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 at his death. That's it. If you were to look at it from human eyes, this is what you would see. You would see failure. He says in verse 4, Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. Look at the perspective of Jesus in all of this. The justice due me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. You will never feel sufficiently valued in your life by others. You never will. A woman will never feel totally valued by her husband. A husband will never feel totally appreciated by his wife. A pastor will never feel totally appreciated by his church. You will never feel totally appreciated by your boss. But the attitude that we have to have is the attitude of the Lord. The justice due me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. My reward is with my God. 
This is why the leaders of Israel could value him at 30 shekels of silver, the price of a dead slave, the contemptible number. My reward is with my God. My reward is with my God. Unless we learn to take upon us that I am serving the Lord, my reward is with my God. My reward is with my God. You will prepare one day a Bible study for people and you'll start teaching them this Bible study and they're going to sleep. And you think, why did I do this? I spent hours and hours and hours and these people are just sleeping. They don't even care. It's life. Your reward is with God. Your reward is with God. Just remember that we are to look at this like Jesus looks at it. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Let's see what the New Testament says about this. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start reading at verse 23. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And who is he speaking to? If you go up to verse 22, he's speaking to slaves. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So it's not to people who are appreciated in their work. He's saying this even to slaves. He says, whatever you do, you do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Oh, you know, my boss just doesn't appreciate me. Well, that's life. That's life. Bosses who don't appreciate you, that's common. If you have a boss who really appreciates you, that's rare. And lots of people feel that they're underpaid for their work. He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It is Jesus whom you serve. You teach a Bible study and everybody goes to sleep. It is Jesus whom you serve. I do this for Jesus. You do something and nobody saw it. Nobody recognized it. Nobody thanked you. Jesus saw it. It is Jesus whom you serve. And when you start getting, and I start getting that perspective in my life, then everything changes. I don't go away just spitting and cursing and all. Never appreciate me. I'm not going to do this anymore. No, it changes your whole attitude. It's like, Jesus sees it. My reward is in heaven. My reward is in, with Him. He says, do your work knowing that the, from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. The Lord will give you the reward. The Lord will give you the reward. He gives rewards on earth and those that He doesn't give on earth, He gives in heaven. You can amass rewards for yourself. You can amass this by faith. You can amass these rewards. He says, whatever you do, you do your work heartily. Don't do it half-hearted. Oh, well, you know, you're not going to pay me much. I think I'll just do a lousy job. I'll pay them according to what they... I'll, I'll do for them according to what they pay me. No, you do it heartily as unto the Lord. The Lord sees it. This was Jesus' attitude. My reward is with my God. Let this change your life. Let this change your attitude. Let this change the way things are done with you. 
that you serve the Lord. It is the Lord whom you serve. Now, let's look at it differently. Let's turn this thing around. That as believers, how should we value others? In this life, we are often not valued enough. Jesus wasn't valued enough. But how should we as believers value others? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. This is how we as believers should value others. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you, as also, as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And they... And and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So look what he says. He says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Now, I'm not saying that I do this well, but I will often try to make a point to say to my graduate students, thank you for the work that you do. You make me look really good. I go out there and I give these lectures and people think that I come up with all these ideas and it's you guys who do it. You make me look really good. Now, once in a while I have one or two little ideas. But I just want to give them this credit. And then on on Labor Day I will always be sure to send an email to the whole group thanking them for the work that they are doing. Now, am I paying them? Yes, I'm paying them. Are they getting a free education? Yes, they're getting a free education. And they're getting their PhD. So it's a pretty good deal for them. But So I could say, well, they've got it pretty good. Why should I thank them? They ought to be thanking me. They ought to be paying me for the honor to work in my laboratory. They should pay me for that. You guys in medical school, do you get paid to go to medical school? No, you pay for it, right? You pay to go to medical school. My graduate students ought to pay me. They don't. I want to, it is my task to show appreciation to them. As believers, we are to show appreciation to those who work for us. You say, well, this is kind of one-sided. Those who work for us, we're to show appreciation. Those for whom we work, they don't show us appreciation. Exactly. The Christian life is one-sided. Jesus pours out His life for us while we are yet sinners. The Christian life is totally one-sided. And this is what it is for believers. He calls us to walk like Jesus. We are not to give back to the world what they give to us. We are to give back to them hearty work, kindness, because it is the Lord Christ whom we serve. Well, I'll apologize to them when they apologize to me. Totally wrong attitude. They're not coming. They're not going to apologize to you. As a believer, you go and you initiate the apology, whether they apologize back or not. You initiate this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, is what Jesus said when they were nailing nails into His body. This is the image of the Christian life. It is different than what the world has. But in this is great riches. He says, diligently. He says, you are to appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And he says, and especially this, those who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. 
We are to honor our pastors. We are to honor those who are instructing us in Christ. I want to honor my pastor. You go say bad things about my pastor. I will stop you. I don't want to hear it. Because he's my pastor. I am there to honor him. And I'm to, it says, and that you esteem them very highly in the love because of their work. I am to esteem my pastor. You don't like your pastor? Go to some other church. Because you're not to be saying negative things about him. You're to esteem him highly. Let's look in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start reading from verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you see the way Jesus demonstrates for us something new in Christianity? Something that is different than the life of the world. I was talking with a woman last night and she and her husband have a ministry. They're both physicians and they have a ministry in Afghanistan. They live in Afghanistan. And they are are my age. And they've always lived overseas just pouring their... but But they moved about eight years ago to Afghanistan. I mean, you talk about a hard, dangerous place. And they work among people in Afghanistan. And I, she said, it's, it's so dangerous for believers there, the, the, uh, the local believers, because they don't know who is a believer and who isn't. And she told me about the ministry of one man. There's a believer among the Afghanis, and he goes out and he takes food and clothing, and he has this ministry. He goes into the streets with this truck, and he distributes food and clothing to the Afghanis. And he says, she said that one man walked up to him and said, you must be my brother. And he was afraid to say anything because he didn't know who the secret police are, what's going to happen. He says, no, you must be my brother. He says, Muslims don't do this for other Muslims. You must be my brother. And they embraced. They were both believers in Christ. Do you see, Jesus has something very different for us. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. How are we to regard another person? We regard them in this way. You are more important than me. I don't care what your credentials are or how great your education is or if you're CEO of the company or if you're you know, Joe Dean of the university. When you look at another individual, the Bible says, you are to regard them higher than yourself. You want to know how to regard another person? You are more important than me. It's an amazing thing what he calls us to. You, with humility of mind. That means in your mind, just up here, in your mind, this individual is more important than me. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is what he calls us to. Do you see the standard? The standard that Jesus sets for us is higher than any standard. But he demonstrated it. This is what the Son of God did. He came into this world and He lived amongst us. He didn't just come and preach for one hour and walk out. Anybody can look good for an hour. I can stand up here and look very good for one hour. But He lived among us. And we saw the way He related to people. And that's how you see what's in a man. This is what He did with others. He viewed them as more important than Himself. 
This is what He demonstrates to us. And this is why when He is valued, greatly undervalued, valued with disdain and contempt, He can say, the justice due me is with my Lord. It is the Lord whom I serve. This is the attitude as believers that we are to pick up. Totally one-sided. We give, the world takes. That is what Jesus demonstrated to us. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of Your Word. I pray for these young people that they will never forget this message, but that You would just sear this on their hearts this day, I pray Thee, that they would see that they are serving the Lord. When they feel an injustice has been done to them, where they have not been recognized, Father, that they would take comfort in You, that You have seen it, and that they would continue to walk in service to You. And Father, I pray here for those who do not know You, that You would shake their hearts through this message, for they will be totally unable to walk in this without the Holy Spirit filling their hearts. I pray, Lord, that this very day they would say, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner. What You have called me to is too high for me. I cannot do it. And so they would call upon You to fill their lives with the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, I pray that You would so fill their lives and that they would say this very day, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. Father, save their souls this day, I pray Thee. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.